I'm Ben Horton. And I'm Amrit Swali. And you're listening to Undercurrents, the podcast from Chatham House. Hello and welcome back to Undercurrents, the Chatham House podcast. Thanks very much for joining us on what is a very dark and rainy day in London this week in early March. I'm joined by my colleague Amrit Swali from the International Security Programme. Amrit, how are you? I'm pretty well, Ben. Thank you. It's also raining here, so you are not experiencing gloomy weather all on your own. Yeah, we're all in it together for sure. But we've got a really interesting episode for you this week, which will hopefully lift the gloom. It's uh, something a bit different. So today I'm actually not speaking in either of the interviews. Um, You'll be relieved to hear. We have an interview first up from our Asia Pacific programme, which is a discussion between John Nilsson Wright, who is the Career Foundation Career Fellow at Chatham House, and Mr. Tae Yong-ho. Mr. Tae is a North Korean-born politician who once held the post of North Korea's deputy ambassador to the UK. And in 2016, he defected from the regime with his family and has since risen to become a prominent politician in South Korea. In the 2020 National Assembly elections, Mr. Tae won a seat as representative of the Gangnam District in Seoul, the first North Korean defector to win a National Assembly seat through a constituency vote. We were honoured to be joined a couple of weeks ago by Mr. Tay for a really wide-ranging conversation about the politics of the Korean peninsula, including the domestic situation in the north and how the international community should shape its foreign policy towards Kim Jong-un's regime. So John led on that discussion and uh, thanks very much to John for stepping in there. It's a really, really fascinating conversation. Then we have a second interview just as interesting with Amrit. Amrit, why don't you tell us who you spoke to this week? I'd love to. I spoke to Laura Dunkley, who is a colleague of ours at Chatham House. She is the Research Partnerships and Inclusion Officer who works in the Director's Office, so working across all of the research institutes and making sure everything is all very well aligned. Laura has been working for a few years now on an initiative with the Centre for Feminist Foreign Policy and BASIC, They've been putting together a gender, think tanks and international affairs toolkit, which is a really cool document, which I think we will link in the show notes. But essentially, it's a very, very actionable toolkit and has some really good tips and guidance for incorporating gender and EDI considerations within think tanks and other NGOs working on international affairs. Um, It's split into a few different sections. So there are tips on convening and debate, on research and analysis and comms and publishing as well. So it's It's really quite actionable and covers a very broad spectrum in the think tank and research world. But that was released a couple of weeks ago and Laura and I had a quick chat about what the toolkit is, why they put it together and how they might go forward with this. Awesome stuff. Well, let's have a listen, starting off with John's conversation with Mr. Tay. Mr. Tay, given your unique experience as a former North Korean official, could you reflect a little bit on how you see the current state of the leadership in North Korea? Kim Jong-un has been saying some remarkable things in public, 
pointing out the weaknesses and shortcomings of economic policy in the DPRK. He has also, in his public remarks, I think highlighted some of the difficulties North Korea seems to be facing domestically. We have the impact, of course, of sanctions, flooding, natural disasters. And even though the official line from North Korea is that COVID-19 is not a problem in North Korea, I think a lot of experts suspect that this may be an overly optimistic presentation of the situation. What is your immediate thought about the fragility or strength of the North Korean political regime at the moment, given those very significant problems? Yeah, first of all, I would like to tell about the fragility rather than the strength of the legitimacy of Kim Jong regime. Uh, first of all, in the last Eighth Party Congress, Kim Jong Un replaced around uh, 70% of the leadership in the Central Committee of Workers' Party of Korea. And in the administration council, I mean, in the government, uh, he replaced around 50% of the current the, the ministers of North Korean government. So in a word, he almost replaced a half of the leadership of uh, his party and uh, his government. So it is a quite unprecedented. Of course, in the past, there were frequent uh, changes of the leaderships, but when we say about the scale of the change of the leadership just in one time, I think this is the biggest change of the leadership in North Korean uh, the leading uh, the class. The second uh, thing which I want to tell you is that Kim Jong-un officially accepted the failure of his economic plan. And last year, he even, you know, accepted that he did not achieve his economic goals. Uh, so that means that in North Korea, economic situation is really, really uh, seriously bad. But thirdly, what I want to tell you that in yesterday's a party plenary meeting and in eighth party congress, Kim Jong-un could not lay out his new uh, vision of economic policy. He tried to delegate all the reasons of the economic failure to uh, the North Korean leaders, not the policy or structure itself. I read the speech uh, he made yesterday. He said that the current problem of North Korea's economic failure is that the leaders of North Korea are lacking the experienced leaderships and they are just obsessed with pessimistic spirits of all these things. So he continues to touch about the spiritual things rather than he would like to focus on the policy things itself. So Honestly uh, speaking, the current economic, you know, the failure of North Korea actually is related to the economic policy itself, not the people who are leading the North Korean economy. So I think the people in North Korea and also the leaders in North Korea, even though they, they don't show, but they are a little bit lost hope, I think for immediate, you know, the improvement of economic uh, situations. And John, you mentioned about Corona, you know, the situation in North Korea. 
it seemed to me that in the first few months of last year, uh, year's corona situation, North Korea, I think, responded uh, very uh, strongly. They closed the borders with China and Russia and also the seas. So they almost uh, cut off, you know, the relations with the outside world. Uh, North Korean regime even did not accept the repatriation of North Korean defectors from Chinese side. Mm. So I think in the first few months, I think Kim regime responded and reacted in a right way because they blocked, you know, all those movements and also the communications with outside of the world. So like a country, uh, North Korea, which is very vulnerable in vaccination or quarantine system, I think, North Korea had uh, chosen the right way, you know, to deal with it. Because mm. if Corona is inside North Korea, and if North Kim regime uh, did not, I think, block all these movements and cut off the communications with outside world, then I can imagine there could be a catastrophe, you know, of the Corona crisis. But I think Kim knows quite well how to cope with these kind of, you know, epidemic, yes. And that presumably poses a bit of a dilemma for Kim. Closing the borders, as you say, is a way of insulating yourself from infection and the risks associated with the virus. But given what you've said about his attempt to blame his previous officials or current officials for their failure to address economic needs, how is he going to be able to get around that problem? I mean, he taught, you say he's referring to their kind of lack of will, their lack of kind of spiritual engagement. But presumably, he's a young man. He must, given his international experience, one would expect know about the importance of getting assistance from the outside and having the opportunity to attract foreign investment, foreign economic support, particularly from China. Do you think he has a plan about how best to restart the economy, to get it moving again. And if he's criticizing officials, is there not a danger that ordinary North Korean opinion will start to blame the entire political class? Yes, I think if we read uh, the history of Kim Il-sung, his grandfather, we can easily find out what his next step is. When the Korean War was over, Kim Il-sung strongly mentioned about a self-reliance. He said that North Korea should recover from a war damage on the spirit of self-reliance. But what really happened, which Kim Il-sung didn't tell to North Korean people, is that he visited the Soviet Union and the Eastern European countries to appeal for economic aid and help. So at that time, vast economic aid you know, arrived from former Soviet Union and former Eastern European countries. But uh, North Korean propaganda media didn't tell about it, but they used uh, this kind of outside aid as kind of, you know, a something uh, which Kim Il-sung created. But actually, that was not. So I think if we uh, read the Kim Jong-un's official speeches in the last part eight, he pay great attention on the relations with the China and also Russia and the other anti-imperialist, you know, the uh, independent forces. And he even appointed a man to be the head of international department of 
Workers' Party of Korea, who actually started in China. So uh, I think his next step that yeah, he would reach China for help, I think. Mm. But on the meanwhile, I think North Korean people know very well that because of economic sanctions, North Korea's economic life is very serious. But I think in the coming month, I think he may either visit the China or he may, I think, ask China for great help to North Korea. I think that is the only way to find a survival, I think, for Kim. Mm. So I think uh, he learned that the relations between China and America is getting worse and worse even after Biden. Biden is still wants to continue the President Trump's, you know, anti-Chinese uh, policy. So I think that is one of the way Kim Jong-un would think that uh, he can uh, rely on, you know. So I think China, we have to pay attention on Chinese factor or on future North Korea's mm. relations, yes. Very, very quick question before we move on to the question of relations with the incoming Biden administration. If you had to sort of assess the state of public opinion, such as there is in North Korea, or public attitudes towards Kim Jong-un, how is he being viewed at the moment by his citizens, particularly those individuals in Pyongyang? Has his popularity changed? Is there a sense in which this admission is actually winning him points with ordinary North Koreans, this admission of economic failure, or is it going to undercut his authority? I think popularity is going down in North Korea. I met some people who defected uh, last year from uh, North Korea. Uh, of course, they were from uh, Hamgyong province. And what they said that in the past three or four years, it was a very difficult uh, time for North Korean people because outside of Pyongyang, there was no ration at war these years, in the past three or four years. Before the Kim Jong regime, at least the people in the countryside uh, received at least two or three months food ration from the government at least two or three months. But nowadays, completely it's gone. No food ration at all. Of course, inside Pyongyang, the food ration is still available for Pyongyang citizens. But outside of Pyongyang, nobody now is reliant on the government of food ration. So that's why actually the people's spirit of so-called self-reliance, not on the government, but on himself is getting rising and rising. So that's why the relation between Kim Jong-un and government and the rest of North Korean people is getting wider and wider. And whatever Kim Jong-un says, or how many meetings were convened in Pyongyang, actually the people in North Korea don't mind. Mm. Yes. I understand. That's very interesting. I mean, given that difficult situation in the countryside and the lack of access to food rations. And this brings me to the question of relations with the United States and the new Biden administration. Will Kim, in your judgment, be tempted to use some sort of provocation with the United States to distract domestic opinion away from those economic hardships and also to try and compel the Biden administration to sit down in negotiations? Will there be some sort of demonstration of North Korea's technical prowess, a missile launch, shelling of the border areas with South Korea, will there be something that we should expect as a disruption to signal 
to Washington that Kim wants to be taken seriously and wants to, to be involved in some formal discussions with the Americans? Oh, first of all, I'd like to tell that Kim Jong-un is uh, very interested in resuming talk with Biden administration, like what he did with the Trump administration. Mm. Secondly, Kim Jong-un is very careful with Biden. In his eight-party Congress uh, report, he said that the most uh, important factor for him in relation with South Korea and America is removing the hostile policy from American side. And he especially mentioned about the resuming of South Korea-America joint military drill in the March. He said if America and South Korea resume that military joint drill, then he uh, will respond very strongly. But Kim Jong-un understands very well that the coming Biden administration will not resume the U.S.-South Korean uh, joint military drill to the level of 2017, I think, because even though Biden says that he hates the Trump's legacy in relation with North Korea, but I don't think that uh, Biden would provoke Kim Jong-un, you know, uh, from his side. So he wants to continue this process of which uh, Trump made in regards to the war exercise. So now in North Korea, for instance, Kim said that don't do it. If you do it, I'll do this. And now if Biden doesn't do it, then he finds himself a kind of legitimacy, not carry out of provocations. And he may try to propaganda to his people and to the leaders of North Korea that he is actually the one who is controlling the current situations. So I think that is Kim Jong-un's tactic. So I don't think Kim Jong-un would provoke the current situations as long as Biden keeps on the current, you know, the level of the Korean Peninsula situations, yes. Mm. Last question on the question of the US-North Korea relationship. If Kim, as you are pointing out, is making these quite sophisticated calculations and is not going to provoke and can present the kind of relatively lower levels of joint exercises between the Americans and South Koreans as a sign that he is being successful in managing the security situation, he still needs to have those discussions. Will he be tempted to offer some symbolic concession? Because the Americans have said, that unless there is substantial evidence of a commitment to CVID, comprehensive, verifiable, and irreversible disarmament, substantive talks are not going to happen. So surely North Korea needs to make the first move. And what would that move look like in that case? I would tell uh, three points in this regard. The first one is what Kim Jong-un said in his report that he greatly advanced his uh, nuclear capability in the last four years. That means that because of the failure of the talk with the Trump, he had no choice but uh, continued to develop his nuclear assets in the last four years. And what he said that in the future, in the coming five years, he delivered uh, the detailed plan of his uh, improving uh, the military and nuclear assets, something like nuclear submarine. He said that the draft of nuclear submarine is at the final stage. He is ready to further develop all those tactical, uh, the missiles and nuclear weapons. So he gave a full, you know, the blueprint of 
uh, the new advancements of the military and nuclear assets. And as he said, that the next party Congress will come in five years. So that means that these things will happen during the Biden administration. If Biden does not do anything, or he, if Biden does not open any talk with North Korea, then he will go you know, his way. So I think he wants to give a kind of pressure on Biden administration. But on the meanwhile, he tried to make a kind of concession. Uh, if we read the speeches by Kim Yo-jong in last July, and also in Kim Jong-un's report is that North Korea now continues to say that North Korea's nuclear assets cannot be changed. The status of North Korea's uh, nuclear weapon state cannot be changed. But if America is clever enough, then America may use their brains to reduce the direct nuclear threat of North Korea. So now it's up to America how to interpret this new the message. So my guess is that now Kim Jong-un delivered all his various sets of nuclear weapons from short range, middle, you know, the range, and also ICBMs. And all, all these various kinds of nuclear weapons. Now he is signaling that he may make a kind of compromise on these ICBMs because Kim Jong-un wants to say that he wants to, you uh, know, uh, if America is interested to remove direct nuclear threat of North Korea, then they can reach something. So now it's up to Biden administration that if Biden administration wants to make any kind of progress in nuclear deal, if Biden administration say that, okay, we may come to a kind of, you know, concession, something like we can lift at least one or two economic sanctions among of 11, but in return for removing maybe 10 ICBMs or whatever. So it's kind of very small deal, you know, between North Korea and America. That is what North Korea wants because mm -hmm. North Korea wants to be accepted by America as a kind of official nuclear state. So if America makes this kind of deal with the North Korea, this is not denuclearization deal. This is a nuclear disarmament deal, which mm -hmm. happened exactly between America and former Soviet Union or America and Russia, like SART or, you know, the START, because in the basic character of SART and START is that the nuclear status of America and Russia were not changed, but actually the level of nuclear threat a little bit reduced or whatever. So America and at that time Russia accepted their nuclear status and try to reach a kind of compromise to reduce it. So that is what North Korea wants. So if North Korea makes a breakthrough in making that kind of deal, then North Korea may say that now they are officially accepted, you know, like Russia or China. And also they want to give a kind of, you know, legitimacy to Biden administration as well. Maybe Biden administration can say that, look, in the past several decades, no American administration made any progress. No single missile dismantled or whatever. But Biden administration is the first administration to take a practical reduction of some kind of, you know, fiscal, you know, the threat of something like that. That is what North Korea is trying to achieve.
So that sounds like a very rational strategy to get these sorts of modest incremental achievements that both Washington and Pyongyang can present as successes. This leads me on to the question of South Korea. So the Moon administration, many would argue, played a vital role as a catalyst for getting Donald Trump to meet with his North Korean counterpart. Now, you're obviously an opposition, newly elected National Assemblyman. I would be very interested, and our listeners would be very interested to know what you think, how would you assess the past record of the Moon administration in facilitating dialogue with the DPRK and the position of the government now? President Moon's popularity is just below 40%. Relatively speaking, that's for presidents in South Korea at this time in their term in office with just about a year to go. That's not that low, actually. That's relatively high compared to previous presidents. And there seem to be lots of evidence from public opinion polls that South Koreans, including young South Koreans, want to see an improved relationship with the DPRK. So how would you assess President Moon's success with the North and particularly his ability to get the Americans and the North Koreans talking to one another? Will he be able to play that sort of role with the Biden administration and Kim Jong-un? First of all, I think Moon administration has a very fundamental different, you know, uh, the viewpoint uh, from me. Even this month and in uh, January, uh, President Moon said that he still believes that Kim Jong-un is uh, still interested in denuclearization of North Korea. The new uh, the foreign minister, Chung Wuyong, in his parliamentary hearing, he said that he still strongly believes that Kim Jong-un is still is interested in denuclearization of North Korea. So that is really, I don't agree with it. I'm not quite sure whether President Moon or his people uh, really believe that Kim Jong-un may one day you know, dismantle these nuclear weapons. The arguments of South Korea and current South Korean government is that it is the matter of outside because if the Trump administration did not uh, break Hanoi summit, maybe the current North Korean nuclear uh, assets would be different or something like that. So they try to give a kind of, you know, the image is that it is because America or outside, you know, the world so far uh, has not given the enough incentives to bring North Korea to the uh, station of uh, denuclearization. That's why current South Korean government wants to continue the uh, peaceful process of Korean Peninsula. But I strongly do not agree with it because no matter how much are given to North Korea, I don't believe Kim Jong-un would, you know, give up its nuclear weapons. What, therefore, would you recommend that a South Korean government, if it were a government headed by your party, should be doing at the moment in terms of policy towards North Korea? I think we should uh, accept the reality that a North Korea will not give up its nuclear uh, the weapons. North Korea will stay as a nuclear weapon state as long as possible. So that's why South Korea should uh, find a new approach to it. Uh, how do we find, for instance, we should find a new way to live together with the nuclearized North Korea. 
And also, we should give a very strong signal to North Korean uh, regime that as long as there uh, is a nuclear weapons, South Korea cannot, you know, open economic the exchanges or corporations with, with the North Korea. South Korea cannot open Gumgang project or Gaesong economic complex. Nuclear issue is the vital issue for South Korea. So I think South Korea must make a very clear the policy uh, signal to North Korea. But now, uh, in the past two or three years, Moon administration gave a really wrong signal to uh, North Korean uh, leadership. The first one is that they gave uh, too much, I think, expectations to Kim Jong-un's side. So when Kim Jong-un firstly met Moon Jae-in and the people from South Korea and Pyongyang, Kim Jong-un believed that a South Korea could play a role of a true mediator. Kim Jong-un thought that South Korea could convince America to reach a kind of compromise with Kim Jong-un on nuclear, you know, the issues. That is one of the reasons why he delivered about his offer of dismantlement of Yongbyon pro-nuclear complex in return for removing five economic sanctions, actually, the America, you know, uh, is not ready. And I don't think America will uh, make that kind of compromise while Kim Jong-un keeps tens or, or you know, uh, hundreds of nuclear, you know, the missiles. So that is a really wrong, I think, impression he got uh, from South Korean side. And the second thing is that South Korea still continues to give a wrong image to Kim Jong-un, South Korean government continued to say that the Kungangsan projects or Gaesong, you know, economic complex uh, must be reopened. You know, America should lift uh, some of economic sanctions in return for any concessions from Kim Jong-un on nuclear issues. So they want to uh, give and take. They want to exchange something mm. with the North Korea. You see, but I am strongly against it because Whatever we do for Kim Jong-un, of course, he may dismantle some of the things, some of the second or outdated nuclear facilities. Like, you know, he wants to make a grand, you know, the compromise with America, with ICBMs. On the meanwhile, you know, Kim Jong-un is ready actually to dismantle Yongbyon nuclear complex because a lot of, you know, the nuclear facilities, there are really outdated. It's really obsolete. So from North Korean point, to some extent or to some day, they have to, you know, say goodbye to these uh, the facilities. They have to build a new ones. Already they have already built new uranium enrichment facilities. So that's why North Korea has many things to compromise. But to them, economic, you know, sanction is really vital. So if we give something to North Korea, in return for those garbages which North Korea you know, want to throw, then I think it will only strengthen and legitimize Kim Jong-un's policy. Because when Kim Jong-un finished his ICBM in November of 2017, he declared to North Korean people, now North Korea is at the door of revolutionary victory. He said that because of these nuclear assets and ICBMs, now Kim Jong-un can make a breakthrough in 
UN monetary sanctions. That is his promise to North Korean people. But after two years, there was no breakthrough. So last year, he even cried and apologized. So we should continue. Let, let me push you on this point, because to play devil's advocate, as you say, we need to be realistic about North Korea as a nuclear power. We also need to be realistic, presumably, that Kim Jong-un is, is the only political game in town in North Korea, right? He's, he's in charge. And, you know, the impact of not offering incentives in the way that President Moon is suggesting is going to have a real substantial effect on the lives of ordinary North Koreans. Is there not an argument for saying that South Korea should be looking to strengthen cooperation with the North, whether it's in addressing health and pandemic-related issues, given the success of the South Korean government in combating COVID-19, or perhaps even more provocatively, playing a long game, right, in terms of direct contact with ordinary North Koreans. You yourself know from the work you and I did together when you were in the North Korean embassy in, in London that European countries, including my own country, the United Kingdom, have looked to develop educational exchange to try and provide opportunities for North Koreans to study abroad. This sort of engagement may have a role to play in actually changing attitudes of the senior leadership and actually materially improving the welfare and livelihoods of ordinary North Koreans. Isn't that a goal worth trying to realize? And isn't President Moon's approach one way of doing that without jeopardizing the strategic issues that we're obviously focusing on? Yes. So, for instance, you know, I strongly uh, support the engagement of the policy with North Korea. What I strongly support is the engagement of human contacts. So, for instance, uh, South Korean government wants to be free to uh, visit North Korea. You see, they want to remove the regulations of the of these uh, free visit to North Korea. I strongly support it. You know. Mm-hmm. And then another thing is that I strongly support the uh, humanitarian, you know, the engagement, something like medicine or food or, you know, all the supplies to the North Korea. I strongly uh, support it. And as far as nuclear, uh, the issues is, is concerned, I think we should make a very strong principle on it. So if you want to open a nuclear talk with the North Korea, either from Biden or, you know, the, from uh, President Moon, uh, what we should ask North Korea to do first. It's not something like to dismantle, you know, one or two uh, ICBMs or Yongbyon complex or Pungeri nuclear site or whatever. No, that is not the ones. We should touch the most essential part. The first thing is that we can say, okay, you may feel threat from America. That's why you may think that uh, you can keep nuclear weapons. But if you are really interested in denuclearization, then at least you should remove the clause of nuclear status from your constitution. Mm. That is very important in North Korea because you can keep it, but in your legal system, Please don't say you are a nuclear uh, state uh, country. So we should ask North Korea to remove it. The second, in the party, you know, or the chart and regulation, it is clearly, you know, mentioned that North Korea is a 
nuclear, you know, the state. So we should ask North Korea to remove it from the party regulation and charter. That is uh, very important. And then we should ask Kim Jong-un to officially announce to the world that North Korea may denuclearize if something is met. But so far, Kim Jong-un and North Korean side never mentioned about the North Korea's nuclear dismantlement or North Korea's denuclearization. They continue to say denuclearization of Korean peninsula. That is entirely, you know, the different concept. So mm-hmm. I think we should try to be practical to make these things clear. Okay, we're almost out of time, Mr. Ted. I'm going to end with one wildcard question, which is very different from what we've been talking about. As you well know, from all the time you've spent in the United Kingdom, Great Britain has a long history of contact with the Korean Peninsula, more than, well, we're talking now 20 years of contact with the DPRK. You saw the beginning of that process of diplomatic relations between London and Pyongyang, and of course, also a long history of diplomatic ties with the Republic of Korea. What role can and should Britain play in its policy towards both North Korea and South Korea, in your judgment, as somebody who is uniquely former North Korean official and now, of course, a serving South Korean politician? I strongly support the current British government's critical engagement policy with North Korea, because so far, British government maintains this kind of, you know, engagement, but in critical way, they opened the embassy in Pyongyang. They had a lot of, you know, the education programs like British Council uh, programs of English, you know, the educations. Each year, FCO invited 20, you know, North Korean uh, civil servants for this English is a program. Actually, it is not English program, but it's a kind of, you know, enlightenment uh, the program for North Korean civil servants. British government continues its humanitarian aid. And they always welcomed the visit of North Korea's uh, high rankings to uh, London. So, but internationally, uh, uh, Britain was one of very strong advocate of human rights. And on South Korean side, a British government maintained that the sanctions must not be lifted as long as North Korea does not promise the true denuclearization of North Korea. So, so far, British government's uh, critical engagement policy is really clear, practical, and very disciplined one. Britain has experienced the history with uh, the Hitler because you learned about the experience of appeasement and also, you know, the war, Second World War. So I think British government so far uh, have been very clever in dealing with North Korea. Mm. Thank you, Mr. Tay. That's very interesting to hear your perspective. We are, uh, unfortunately, just about out of time. I want to thank you again for being so frank with your answers and for agreeing to meet with us and share your views. I hope when the COVID-19 situation becomes a little less acute and we all have the opportunity to travel again, that we can actually welcome you in person to Chatham House and to the United Kingdom. It's been fascinating to hear your views about the state of South Korean politics and of course, you know, the critical issue of the nuclear challenge of North Korea. I hope we will have more opportunities to talk, but let me again thank you very warmly for your participation, and we look forward to continuing our dialogue with you in the future. John, thank you very much. 
for uh, this wonderful talk. And I really do hope that our friendship uh, would continue in the future. I'm really excited to be joined by my colleague, Laura Dunkley, who is the Research Partnerships and Inclusion Officer here at Chatham House. Hi, Laura. Hi, Amrit. Thanks for having me. Earlier this year, Laura, you launched, along with BASIC and the Centre for Feminist Foreign Policy, a toolkit for gender think tanks and international affairs. But I wonder if you could perhaps start with telling us a bit about the background behind the toolkit. What were your motivations when you were putting it together? And I think the idea came about through, I guess, a shared frustration and concern between staff at Chatham House, BASIC, and CFFP, the Centre for Feminist Foreign Policy, and the lack of awareness and attention to gender and inclusion in the think tank community and what this really means and what impact it has. And I think it's particularly important when considering the knowledge produced by think tanks and what research is being done what policy events are taking place, who gets to speak at them, and also then internally within the think tanks themselves, like who works in a think tank, who has access, who is being excluded, you know, who we see as a think tanker, and is there a particular perception of who that person is or should be? So all these questions really matter because think tanks occupy an influential space within the policy world, and any imbalances will mean that all the voices, knowledge and experiences heard will be limited and could potentially be quite skewed. This is a really big problem when you actually think about how many think tanks there are in the world globally. So there's just under 8,000. So let me just give an example. It's a study conducted by the Open Society Foundations that found that in Europe, men occupy nearly uh, 80% of all speaking roles at leading policy conferences. And when women are invited to speak, it was found that they were mainly asked to speak on gender and discrimination issues. So you can really imagine how these imbalances can have such far-reaching consequences because it systematically excludes women's voices and experiences being heard by policymakers and other key decision makers in the room. And I think we can do better than this. And we, we should be doing, in fact, we must be doing better than this. And I really believe that think tanks have an opportunity to become leaders in driving change across international affairs and a change that, if it's done correctly, can be both really transformational and sustainable. Linking this back to the toolkit, during 2017 and 18, we were thinking about all these questions and what we can do about it, which is really where the idea of the toolkit came about. And we thought it would be a tangible and practical resource to offer the community so that immediate action can be taken and you know, there's no kind of waiting around. So to get it started, we organised the breakfast workshop series and invited a group of experts and practitioners that have been working on gender and inclusion for longer than we have. And we as a group mapped out the components necessary for a toolkit. And then in the remaining last two years, we, so myself, my two fellow co-authors, Marion and Marissa, really built on the work based on our own experiences um, and put the tool together and kind of finalised it over the last two years so it's been a really fantastic process. And as you said, a real labour of love. And we're really excited and looking forward to engaging with other think tanks on the toolkit and getting their feedback over the coming months. A rather depressing stat from the Open Societies Foundation study. And I know at Chatham House, even before the toolkit was launched, you've been quite instrumental in shaping our manuals policy and procedures for our panels for ensuring representation. But of course, 
panels are only one aspect of the toolkit. I wondered if you could tell us a bit about the other priorities you had when putting this together. Yeah, absolutely. It is a bit depressing, but I think it was quite a hard-hitting report that made people in the think tank community, particularly those that were labelled in the report, you know, it was a bit of a wake-up call. So there's a positive in that, I think. So when we were thinking about putting the toolkit together in the beginning, but all the way throughout as well, we kind of had two priorities and we were really keen to not reinvent the wheel, um, but really amplify and promote all the existing resources and methods that are already kind of out there. And we wanted to use the knowledge of the people at the breakfast series and really listen to what they have to say. For example, one of the main bits of feedback was to ensure that we took an intersectional approach which means that we're not just focusing on gender, but we're also looking at the ways in which gender intersects with race, class, um, disability and religion, for example. Yes, we really wanted to just amplify the knowledge and the resources that are already there, particularly from communities that have been working on this for years and decades. I think women of colour have been talking about some of these things for decades, and we really want to learn from what's already there. Which leads me into my second point. We then wanted to take what we'd gained from these breakfast series and through our own experiences and present it in a resource that's accessible and easy to digest. So not to diminish the hard work that is really necessary to make changes, but to ensure that the work actually begins and we don't remain stuck or, you know, paralysed. And we also created a resource dashboard that collates all the amazing resources that we've come across over the last few years And we also break down the toolkit into kind of four main areas to make it digestible. So looking at organisational changes, convening, research and communications and publishing. One of the things I liked most about the toolkit was how applicable and actionable it is. So it's obviously divided into various sections, but within each section there are quite clear action points and things that people can do irrespective of seniority or role. So just wonder, could you tell us how do you see this toolkit being used? Um, could you perhaps elaborate a bit more on that? So the very, I guess at the very minimum, we hope that the toolkit serves as a conversation starter for those think tanks that have maybe not really been thinking about any of these issues, so gender and inclusion, or have started on their journey of making changes and you know progress is a bit slow. So obviously the toolkit has its own limitations and is by no means the only definitive guide or resource. But because we've provided, as you say, lots of kind of action-orientated recommendations, tips and guidance, we hope that think tanks are able to take at least the small steps over the next year. And as I've mentioned, we really hope to engage with think tanks on this over the coming months to hear their feedback and see how things are going and see how we can develop this further, either in creating a new resource or, you know, whatever way it kind of takes we only launched it a couple of weeks ago so we're still early in that process but yeah we look forward to seeing how it's going to be used and working closely with other think tanks in in making sure it is so sometimes in institutions as established as the one we work in you we often find that change can be a little bit difficult and you might experience pushback when you're trying to encourage certain forms of development that might run counter to the way things have been run for so long So what were the major challenges you faced in perhaps trying to bring about a culture change to make the environment, perhaps at Chatham House, more welcoming for a toolkit like this? What what kind of things do you think are necessary? Thank you. I really like this question. And it's something that I've been thinking about a lot, grappling with over the years. And I think internally with 
Chatham House. We've made some really good changes over the last few years. I think particularly through the implementation of a gender action plan, which, as you know, set objectives to be more inclusive across our three main areas of activities, which are similar to the toolkit as well. So research, convening and uh, comms and publishing. And we still have a really long way to go and the work continues. But I think the work that we did within the gender action plan and raising awareness and really talking about the importance of the work and showing the differences it can make has helped to build an environment that makes the toolkit uh, welcomed, but also the importance of it was recognised. So there was no convincing people, well, we, you know, this is important because it was, it was already accepted, which I think is really nice. So that was more internally, but in a more externally facing way, I think the external pressures and changes within society to social norms have also been a huge influence in driving change to people's attitudes, people's understanding about the ways in which inequalities and discrimination kind of manifest within society more broadly, but also within think tanks and what that kind of looks like. So this, of course, obviously has been a huge influence on think tanks and the way that we operate, which has made the publication of this toolkit quite timely. And hopefully it's going to be more welcomed because people are starting to really understand why we need to bring attention and awareness and, and, and crucially action to bring about gender equality and inclusion more broadly. So I think there's a mixture of things. I think there's, you know, internal awareness, listening to staff, and then also helps by a few external pressures. Laura, you mentioned earlier that it's important for think tanks to be diverse and representative because of the space they occupy in the policy world and because of the impact they have on policy making. But of course, as you say, external pressures that we've seen in the past year. So, for example, the COVID-19 pandemic, the Black Lives Matter movement, other various social movements and democratic protests. These have all perhaps been really invaluable for making think tanks and big NGOs and other institutes that do research, for example, to really take stock of what their internal processes and structures look like. How do you think the external pressure can be supplemented by internal direction? Thanks, Amrit. Yeah, good question. I don't think it's enough on its own because you really need to create a culture change within the organisation. So just having, you know, the external pressures which tend to be illuminated or really present in the media or within, you know, general conversation at any given time and then can wax and wane. So the momentum isn't necessarily sustained. So I definitely think action is needed internally alongside that to maintain the momentum of whatever it is happening, you know, within wider society, whatever conversations are happening. And I think external pressures can be positive in terms of catalyzing change internally, as long as it's accompanied by a bit of internal reflection in terms of why it's taken that long to realize there's a problem or pay attention to something and what what it means in terms of, you know, having not done something, but now doing it and making sure that it's done properly. And it's not just a one-off tick box exercise in a really tokenistic way where you you talk about it as an institute and then nothing no changes are made to the structures and policies so I think it really needs to be a combination of things particularly internally and it is everyone's responsibility as well it shouldn't just be one person that drives the change or leads the conversation it really needs everyone needs to be 
involved and is responsible for that. And that's really necessary to build accountability as well. And I don't think you can really do that if things are done in a really superficial, tokenistic way. I think it really needs to be a whole organisation approach where you're thinking about this across all areas of activities and within all kind of structures and looking at the barriers that are preventing or in excluding people and change. Great. Well, I mean, the toolkit... It's quite exclusively, explicitly at least, focused on gender. But of course, you do mention that you have tried to take into account intersectionality and look at the way gender intersects with race, disability and other forms of diversity as well. So I just wondered, are there plans to expand this to incorporate other forms of diversity? And what would that require from a practical sense and from a research point of view? So we hope that the toolkit's focus on gender is just a starting point for a much, much wider and in-depth discussion and work on intersectionality um, within the think tank community. And interestingly, there's actually, at the moment, a huge data gap within the think tank community itself. So who works in the think tank and in what positions? So more and better data, I think, is needed on women's representation within think tanks in order to better understand the gaps and realities. And then on top of that, we need to ensure that We're using an intersectional analysis that really understands how gender is mediated through race, ethnicity, religion, class and disability. And there are a few think tanks that are already doing this, either through, you know, they have a huge programming on gender and inclusion work or they've, you know, they're doing this as an organisation. So that's been really interesting to see. Um, Hopefully, as a community, we can learn from organisations already working on this, because I think that's also really important is, you know, the peer-to-peer learning and sharing on, you know, best practice and what we can do, what we aren't doing so well and what we can do better. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today, Laura. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. So, Ben, as you didn't partake in any of these interviews. What are your initial thoughts? My initial thoughts, as as just a listener, I am really excited about the gender toolkit because I think I was involved at some point in some of the roundtables that helped to kind of bring it together. And the conversations at Chatham House about diversity and inclusion have been really gaining momentum in the last few years. And that's been really interesting to see and to hear about. So it's really nice to have like a tangible sort of set of things that we can think about when we're trying to mainstream gender into our research activities. So that was super cool. And I also thought that John's interview with Mr. Tae Yong Ho was really, really fascinating. He uh, covered a huge amount of ground and I can't imagine what it must be like to have been a part of the North Korean regime and then to have kind of risked so much to to move away and then once you've done that to then be so outspoken about the politics of the Korean Peninsula I, I don't know I sort of feel like if I had been in his position I can't really imagine it but I I, <laughs> I would assume I would just be hiding somewhere so it was uh, really inspiring to listen to him but that's it for this episode we're going to be back in a couple of weeks with some more interviews for you All that remains for me to say, really, is thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, you can leave us a review or subscribe on whatever podcast app or platform you like to use. 
it just makes it easier for other people to find us and also makes Ben and I and all the other co-hosts feel really good about what we're doing. Until next time, I'm Amrit Swali and you've been listening to Undercurrents. <laughs>